fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Kyler Hassan, who acts as a portfolio manager for Delta Investment Management. He can be found with his occasional blog post at concentratedcompounding.com and on Twitter, where I find his takes both entertaining and thoughtful. More specific to today's show, he's an investor in Berkshire Hathaway, the American multinational conglomerate holding company famously helmed by Mr. Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett, as basically everyone knows, is probably like the goat of investing, the greatest of all time. Uh, His track record is almost unparalleled. I personally find Berkshire Hathaway fascinating, though we don't talk about it too much at 7investing, where we often focus on more growthier type companies. Uh, If you're a listener of the show, you're probably familiar with the company, though. But if you're not, Berkshire owns everything from insurance companies and railroads to utilities and candy companies. And oh, yeah, it's also one of the largest shareholders of like several large banks, Coca-Cola and Apple. So let's get to it. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Uh, So many investors uh, discovered investing through the sage wisdom found in Buffett's letters. And because of that, they grow up as value investors. So I'm just curious uh, if this includes you. Like, basically, how long have you owned shares in Berkshire? And how did you first discover Buffett? Yeah, um, I actually got interested in investing probably my senior year in high school, uh, we were playing a kind of a stock picking game. And um, I I started to want to look at stocks, you know, after that. And and so, and kind of understand why they're moving. And so I I had a a sort of friend of my father's who recommended some reading material. And, uh, you know, I think it was intelligent investor, um, maybe random walk down wall street. And so I, I started to read some of these books and get familiar. And then I think a first really natural place to go after that was to read Buffett's letters. You know, this was 2008, roughly he was already, you know, the most famous investor in the world. And, you know, so I went on Berkshire's website and started going through the letters oldest to newest. And I would say that was, that was, probably the biggest source of information for me as a new investor, like it is for many other people. Uh, so that's where I kind of got, got my start with that sort of kind of quality investing, uh, that, that he does. Sure. Um, sure. Professionally, uh, you know, I, how long have I owned it? Um, we've owned it since about 2013, um, was our initial purchase, you know, new clients, new money, and we've ad- added from time to time since then. Uh, but yeah, it's been about seven, seven and a half years now. Um, and it's been a pretty good result. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, so I, I, I mean, I briefly mentioned like everything it owned and it's such a, a, a wide variety of companies and holdings. Um, how should investors think of Berkshire? Like, is it more Geico, which it owns, or is it more Apple, which I think it's the largest, you know, stakeholder in Apple? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I really do think of it as a conglomerate. Um, you know, there's some major pieces and some things that are fairly big on their own, but don't really matter, just given how big Berkshire is. 
Um, you know, you, you could say Berkshire might be worth, call it five to $600 billion. Um, you know, the Apple stake is, well, depends on the exact price, but, you know, $100 billion, a little more. Uh, they've got a railroad that's worth, you know, maybe about $100 billion, could be a little more. The insurance is similarly big. Uh, and then they have some some smaller divisions that are still quite big by themselves. But, um, you know, I really think of, you know, unless he sells it at some point, I think of Apple as sort of just as important as the railroad, uh, given their similar values. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I think of it as a collection of generally high quality businesses um, financed in a quite conservative manner, uh, you know, a little debt. Uh, some of the insurance liabilities that they have are, are generally matched to uh, treasury bills. Um, so I, I think for me, it's a large company with many parts with the common theme sort of being that conservative structure and, and the intelligent capital allocation. Sure. So how do you, how do you begin to value this company? Do you have to add up all the different pieces to come to a, a smart valuation? Are there shortcuts? Do you look at price to earnings or price to book? Like how do you approach uh, valuing a company like this? Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good and, and very interesting question that I thought about a lot. I, I do, I've got a sort of a big spreadsheet. I'm not one for, for big complex models, but um, I, I have a big spreadsheet and I do a sum of the parts. Um, I, I take every single business unit, I say what I think it's worth and I add it all up. Um, I, I don't think there's, there's not tremendous complexity inside Berkshire. Um, there are a lot of parts, but if you, you know, the, the 10K is going to come out pretty soon, I think. Um, and if you just sort of slowly go through it and and read it all, you can get a handle for for every business that Berkshire owns, or rather, um, the big businesses and and the big groups. They they group some of them towards the bottom, but but you can kind of get a handle on the whole thing. Uh, that's how I do it. What's funny is, uh, you know, I have some friends that own it, and you know, one of them just kind of looks at price to book, doesn't doesn't do all the math. Uh, and we pretty much think it's cheap at the exact same times. Uh, and if you, if you're on Twitter as well, it's, I always find it really fascinating. It's like all of Twitter knows, no matter how they, how they value it, they all know when Berkshire's cheap and when it's not, it's, it's just sort of a, you know, I look at my model that I've spent all this time on. Right. And I, you know, there'll be certain times when I say, oh man, I think this is really cheap and, and looks really interesting. And, you know, all of Fintwit is like, oh, wow, Berkshire looks really interesting right now. And, and they're mostly just using price to book. So, yeah, uh, I think that's what I do. Like, I will just if, when you say that after you're looking at your really nice, fancy model, I'll go to Morningstar for five seconds and look at the price to book and be like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I think for me, I, you know, now that I have the model, it, the upkeep's not too, too difficult. Um just to update the parts when they move. Um, but, but I think one thing for me is I, I want to understand, well, you know, might what I think is a good value on a price to book basis change over time. Uh, and I think the only, the only way to really see that is to do all the underlying work. Um, and so 
who knows, maybe, maybe Berkshire's sort of fair value on a price to book basis could stay pretty constant over time. And there would be some maybe complex underlying reasons for that. Um, but maybe not. And I just want to make sure, you know, Hey, in, in three or four years, maybe today's 1.3 times book is yesterday's 1.2. And so I want to make sure that if that is the case that I know it and I can take advantage. So that's, that's my big reason uh, to do it like this. And, you know, maybe it adds some error, maybe my, some of the parts isn't really right in the first place. So uh, perhaps I'm not getting anything, but I think it's a good exercise to do at least. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, is it, is it fair to say though, and like, so this is my like, you know, sky high, like view of Berkshire. Is it fair to say the insurance uh, like Geico and the uh, other insurance aspects of it, is it fair to say, is, is it fair to think of the insurance units as kind of like the backbone of the company? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Can you explain, like maybe walk us through just real quick, like how uh, Buffett uses the insurance to kind of like fund everything else? Yeah, this is, it's funny you ask that. This is probably where I view things most differently than everybody else. Okay. So uh, with that caveat, um, the general model that all pretty much any investor has of Berkshire Hathaway um, is the following. They, They own a lot of very large insurance businesses and insurance is a negative working capital business. So uh, your customers pay you up front and then you pay them all that money or most of it back in claims costs um, over time, but there's a gap. So um, we call, they call that float in insurance. Um, and so Berkshire as a whole, the float uh, today uh, as of Q3 2020 uh, is about $135 billion. So, um, Berkshire can make use of that float to invest. Uh, and most people will say, well, you know, Buffett takes all that money and uses it to buy stocks and other businesses. And it's effectively, um, you know, since it's just negative working capital and as the insurance companies grow, um, it's company that you don't, isn't really going to get paid back. So it's perpetual capital to Berkshire. It's very cheap. It costs as long as they underwrite it a, a profit, it costs nothing or less. Uh, and so, Hey, you know, he can go out and, and buy utilities businesses or railroad or whatever it is. And, you know, he can earn 10 or 12% on that money and the money he's using costs nothing. Uh, that's the traditional view. Um, I don't think that's quite right. Just looking through the financials. Um, and, and the reason is, is because in the last 20 years, which is when you can actually kind of look at the balance sheets, he has generally kept uh, sort of fixed maturity securities, which would be cash, government bonds, corporate bonds, and sometimes some, some preferred stock, um, at least equal to the value of, of the float. So, so today, the float's $135 billion, um, and the, the cash, he has some preferred anoxymal petroleum, and the fixed income is $153 billion. Um, so what does that mean? Um, you know, to my eye, uh, he's always been very, very conservative. 
Um, and regulatorily, he'd be allowed to deploy some of that money that's for the float into these productive investments. But over the last, you know, again, 20 years, he's generally kept fixed income at least equal to the value of that float. Um, so it's not like, you know, he's mostly just investing the shareholders' equity, um, you know, keeping the float a little safer. Uh, you can argue, well, in, around the financial crisis, um, if you count some of, his, some of his preferred investments as equity, then, uh, you know, he, he, that was using a little bit of the float. Um, I think it's terribly complex. Uh, I don't think sure. there's one right answer. I think back in, you know, maybe the 70s and 80s and 90s, he probably used a little more of the float for equity investments. These days, I think he's just more conservative and I haven't seen him use it like people usually say, but what he will do is, you know, take the profits from his insurance business and invest them, you know, in, in uh, stock, Apple or stocks or businesses or what have you. So is holding all that cash smart? Like what, if you were put in charge of Berkshire tomorrow, would you, would you hold that cash back or would you uh, like, how would you spend that cash? <laughs> uh, well, one, I trust Buffett to do the right thing. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, he had, um, pretty, he had a pretty decent track record, I guess we'll say. Yeah, no, I, I think what I will say is uh, I think Berkshire's gone through a few periods, um, early days up until um, the late nineties, roughly when they bought uh, General Re, um, he was buying common stocks predominantly. Uh, that's, that's where Berkshire made most of its money. They, they'd done, they bought some wholly owned businesses, but not a lot. Um, and of course that's where he made uh, most of the excess return of his career. Uh, so, you know, he made really terrific returns and things like um, Geico in Washington Post, Capital Cities, um, Coca-Cola. Uh, th those are sort of the big traditional investments that many people who have studied Buffett remember and kind of understand as being incredible. Um, in the late 90s, uh, Chris, Chris Bloomstrand, uh, who writes really terrific letters, uh, Semper Augustus, you, you can find them and I would encourage everybody to read them, um, sort of makes a point that he bought General Re in the late 90s. Uh, he had a lot of excess cash due to that. And then, and it sort of changed Berkshire's balance sheet from being sort of over levered to stocks to under levered. Um, and so at that time in the late 90s, there were some operating businesses uh, some boring ones that weren't tech related that were sort of cheap. And so he started to buy some operating businesses from the late nineties up until maybe three or four years ago. Um, a much higher proportion of Berkshire's cash went to buying companies whole. Uh, and so, you know, they've made some decent stock investments here and there, uh, but mostly they've bought companies um, uh, they've done a lot in the utility space. They bought Blinken Northern Santa Fe, Precision Gas Parts, uh, Kraft, and Heinz. And then that, I guess that's still public, but, uh, you know, they bought Heinz whole or ticket private. Um, so I think if you look at the rate of return that uh, Berkshire Hathaway has earned 
on these bigger wholly owned businesses, um, you know, for one, they're not nearly as good as, as the returns were on the stocks in the early days. That's to be expected as Berkshire's size grew and the opportunity set goes, you know, went down. Um, probably after Burlington Northern Santa Fe, uh, precision, you know, precision cast parts hasn't worked out very well. Kraft and Heinz haven't worked out very well. Um, you know, it's really hard to buy very large businesses these days for somebody like Berkshire uh, because there's lots of competition. Uh, private equity can pay a lot because they use debt that's quite cheap. Uh, strategic buyers should be able to pay more than Berkshire because they'll have synergies where Berkshire doesn't. Um, so I think, and, and when you add on the fact that, you know, Berkshire needs to deploy capital at, you know, $10 billion or $20 billion for it to matter at all. Um, that's a very challenging environment for Buffett to make good returns. So we've started to see uh, last year and this year as well, an increase in share buybacks, uh, which I personally fully support. Um, I think he has an advantage in that he has a big conglomerate and I think it trades at a sort of typical conglomerate discount. It's not huge, but there's a discount there. And so, you know, if you say his options for capital deployment are stocks, well, you know, there's only a few stocks he can buy, uh, full businesses. There's not that many full businesses he can buy and he'd have to pay high prices, uh, or, or share buybacks. I think share buybacks look really attractive. Uh, Berkshire, you know, it's a big collection of attractive assets um, and it trades for less than they're worth. And so I think he can put out hopefully 10 or 15 or $20 billion a year at really good rates of return. Um, you know, and he doesn't face the same business risk that he would have when he bought precision gas parts. You know, if the aerospace market turns down or they have some competitive difficulties, you know, your rate of return, return might not be very good. With Berkshire, it's so diversified that, you know, maybe maybe one business doesn't do as well. Maybe another business does. And when you're buying that whole big group, um, you know, you're going to get a more average result, uh, but it should be pretty good on average. So that's that's what I hope for. And I think many shareholders agree. And, you know, I fully trust that uh, at Berkshire, they'll, they'll do the right thing on that, uh, if that makes sense. Are, so given how, like how large they are, are, are they too big for their own good? Uh, like, is it like maybe not share buybacks? Well, also share buy, share buybacks, but also like, should they start maybe like spinning things off? Or, I mean, like, are they just like almost so big and unwieldy now that it's just hard for wall street to value? And are they always going to have this like conglomerate discount, uh, so to speak, like, uh, you know, I, I, they can only buy so many stocks, like you said, because it has to be like a, a large liquid stock like Apple, where, look, Buffett made a killing on Apple the last few years. He bought it at a great time, but there's only going to be so many opportunities like that in a large cap stock that's so widely followed, uh, yet was so undervalued at a certain point. Like, should should they like spin things off? Like, are they are they too big for for their own good? It depends on what you're trying to solve for, in my opinion. 
Okay. Um, if they broke up Berkshire, I'm pretty much certain that that the value of all the companies would be a, a decent bit higher uh, than what Berkshire stock trades for today. Um, and, you know, it's a group of high quality companies. They could do that. And, and yeah, uh, if you were trying to unlock the value, uh, as they say, then that would work. Um, I, I think there's a couple ways in which, in which, all those companies being a part of Berkshire are good and important. One, um, on the insurance side, they write some really interesting reinsurance policies. Um, they're basically the insurers for other insurers and having a silly amount of extra capital is very beneficial for that. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, if me and you go into a contract and I say, Hey, you know, if something crazy happens to me, you know, I need you to pay me a million dollars in uh, 20 years. It, you know, it matters if your net worth is $1 million or $1 billion. Sure. Of course. Uh, so, so that's a, a big benefit uh, on the reinsurance side. Um, also uh, given how much capital they've built up in their insurance business a truly, really excess capital, um, they can be more aggressive with how they invest. Uh, many, many insurance companies, so um, an insurance company might have assets of, let's say, $3, and uh, the float that we discussed might be $2, and shareholders' equity might be $1. Uh, that would be a common-ish structure for an insurance company. And, and so, like I said, Berkshire, you know, they invest their float, you know, the $2 in that roughly in, in government bonds or, or fixed income or cash. Um, and they invest about the dollar in productive things like stocks and businesses. Um, many insurance companies, given that they don't hold as much excess capital as Berkshire does, they might only invest, you know, 20% of their shareholders' equity in productive assets so out of their $3 capital stack, it might be 20 cents in productive assets and $2.80 in bonds. Uh, so Berkshire's, they're able to invest more of their capital, their shareholders' equity in stocks, uh, which you know should earn a higher return over time. So I think that's a big benefit and benefits to Berkshire scale. Um, you know, there, there's, there's some benefits. Um, Many of Berkshire's operational businesses are are quite underlevered, almost no debt, and and frankly, very few liabilities. Even, um, you know, so if they spun if they spun those companies off, there'd be shareholder pressure to you know have a more efficient capital structure. So, if what you're looking for as an investor is you know I want to make sure I make a good return with as little risk as possible, that can happen in Berkshire if they split off the businesses. You know, I don't think that could happen. Uh, and, and then lastly, maybe, you know, the people that run the businesses don't face outside pressures for, you know, the next quarter or the next six months, uh, which I think is also a, a positive and probably, I would say, more important than many people think. So those are all benefits to Berkshire staying together. An added benefit if you're a long-term shareholder, um, 
you know, listen, if, if Berkshire Hathaway is worth $500 billion and it trades for 550 and it trades at $450 billion on the market and Berkshire has a lot of excess capital and can buy out some partners for less than the stakes worth, then that's very good for you. It's a, it's a very low risk way to deploy lots of capital at a good rate of return and it will increase your return as a shareholder over time. So, um, you know, you won't get the initial valuation pop, but your rate of intrinsic value growth over time should be higher. So, you know, if you're in it for the long haul, I think you want it together for all those reasons. Um, you know, there, there are some downsides. Maybe you could say that, uh, you know, not all the subsidiaries are the best run in their industries and maybe having some public company pressure could be positive uh, for that. Uh, but, you know, it's a hard needle to thread and it's hard sure. to say, um, you know, who knows, you know, if Geico was, was public, it, it might be run a little bit better. It's hard to say, uh, but that's a possible, that's a possibility. And uh, I don't think, you know, we should dismiss it out of hand, but I, I think on aggregate, again, if you're a long-term shareholder, the weight of Berkshire staying together is clearly a positive. Is uh, let's talk about like I guess maybe a common criticism of Buffett is that he's missed the boat on a lot of the, the tech boom, right? I, I think there's a quote, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase it, but I, I think it's taken a little out of context, a little too much, where he said he didn't get technology back in like 2000. Um, you know, besides Apple, I mean, his other big uh investment in, in, in a tech company was IBM, which did not work out well. Has has the world passed Buffett by? Like, it, it, is this like, uh, has has Berkshire missed the boat on tech? Yeah. Um, I think there's a few ways to attack that question. First off, I think when he says he doesn't understand technology, um, my guess, and it's not even really a guess, I, I pretty much guarantee you that if you look at the big tech companies that Buffett understands the economics better than pretty much anybody else. Um, I think when he says he doesn't understand them, I think part of that is his perception, whatever, maybe I shouldn't speak for him, but, but I think his perception might be, Hey, some of these aren't quite as predictable as people think, or maybe like the, I always took it to mean like the durability of the boat, maybe. Right, exactly. Like he, uh, like he would question, like, well, yeah, I, I get, I get my, I get, I don't know, take your pick, Alphabet now or, or Facebook now, but like, uh, he didn't, and I, I, I mean, I think it's a fair point, uh, that he didn't understand like how long could it stay dominant in that field, maybe. Yes, and, and so. Uh, you know, what's funny is that in 20, I think it was 11 was when he bought IBM. And sure enough, you know, if there were five or six big tech companies uh, and IBM was one of them, um, that was the one that didn't wildly succeed. Right, uh, right. You know, the other ones were predictable. That one kind of wasn't. So, right. so, you know, is he the best tech investor out there? No, uh, he's probably made more money on on Apple and tech than pretty much anybody any other investor I can think of besides a couple, but like, 
you know, he, he started off with a lot, so it's cheating a little bit. Sure, uh, sure, of course. But, but yeah, you know, I think, I, you know, I, I think they're not as predictable as some of the other businesses he looks at. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about this. One thing that's interesting is he's talked about Google and said, well, it's hard to see anybody displacing them. And that was a few years ago, and it's been inexpensive from time to time since, uh, it, in my opinion. Uh, and I, I, I own Google. Uh, and so, you know, that's one that, you know, he said, well, I, I understand it. Um, he, he's on the record as saying he thinks it's predictable. Sometimes what he says on the record might be a little different than what he thinks. Um, and it has gotten to a spot where it seems like you could get good, good IRRs on it. Uh, they haven't, they haven't bought it. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think from what I've seen, uh, the investments I've seen him make and maybe more importantly, investments I've seen him not make. Um, I think one thing that I've noticed is, is he has tended to buy things um, sort of at, at fairly low kind of price to free cash flow ratios. Um, so cheap on that metric, which in the last, you know, 10 years has led to some underperformance. Um, it's not clear to me that, you know, that's always going to be the case. Uh, that said, you know, you, you would have rather bought, you know, take your pick Google at a 4% Microsoft cash yield over... six years ago than, sure. yeah, you know, a bank. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. No, I just, it almost, it, I hate throwing criticism at Buffett because he's, uh, he is in every single way imaginable, uh, a better investor than me and a better track record than I will ever have. So it, it almost feels silly, but at the same time, like, and, uh, it almost feels like he's, um, uh, like for instance, when he bought uh craft, uh, you know, a large investment in Kraft Heinz, uh, like that was like in, for lack of a better term, in an old school moat, right? Like it's consumer brands where that moat was eroding. Whereas at the same time, like, it seems like he didn't understand the economic moat that Alphabet or Facebook sported around that same time. Um, it, and, and look, I mean, he's, he's, he's old. Um, you know, and, and he grew up in a different time. And I just wonder if, uh, or I, I just, actually, I just think like that kind of has hurt him in the last decade uh, as, um, I don't know, I guess Berkshire's underperformed the market. I don't know, but maybe the last five years, I think, give or take. Uh, and I think those kind of investments have, have hurt him because he's, you know, he's still looking for, oh, well, this bank, Wells Fargo. Uh, I, you know, even IBM, it was a cheap tech stock. Uh, Wells Fargo was a cheap bank. Uh, Kraft Heinz, you know, it, it looked, you know, it, it had that old consumer goods like moat uh, with brand recognition and things like that. Where at the same time, like, uh, you know, like the world was being taken over. You know, software was eating the world, you know, at that time. Um, like how, how much, uh, I mean, is that, do you think that's fair? Yeah, you know, I, I'm reticent um to say well listen you know he hasn't had the best five years in the world 
So, you know, that's this big, terrible crime. Um, right. I don't think it's, you know, first of all, it's not unacceptable for him to make a few mistakes. Uh, could he have made some decisions better? Sure. Uh, could I have made some decisions much better in the last five years too? Yes. And, you know, and <laughs> to a greater extent as well. Uh, you know, I also, I think the structure of Berkshire, the idea of it is for him to put, put out money, you know, his time horizon is, is a lot longer than, than maybe mine or most investors is. And I, you know, I personally think I have a long time horizon, you know, if you're going to buy a whole business, you got to own it for 50 years. And, uh, you know, did Kraft Heinz work out? Like, not really, but, um, you know, that's okay. We'll make mistakes. But, but I think what he's trying to do is just stockpile assets that are going to be worth a lot more than they are, you know, over 40 or 50 years. And, you know, if in a five or 10 year period, those things don't work out the best, I think that's fine. Um, I think if you that's look a fair at, point, fair point. Yeah. I think if you look at the intrinsic value of Berkshire Hathaway in 2005 and, or 2006, so whatever year you want to pick, call it mid cycle in the mid two thousands and what it is today. Um, in my opinion, the rate of intrinsic value growth of Berkshire Hathaway is greater than the rate of intrinsic value growth of the stock market. Um, most people will compare, well, how did Berkshire stock do compared to the S&P? You have two large confounding variables in there, which is one, uh, Berkshire went from trading at a premium to the sum of the parts to a discount. And, you know, I don't think that's Buffett's fault. Uh, the market, the valuation of the market went up in that time period. It got more expensive. Uh, so you have valuation if you're comparing Berkshire stock return to the S&P, you know, you have Berkshire's valuation working against it and the S&P's valuation helping. Um, you know, if we're talking about Berkshire the, of the 80s, that wouldn't have mattered because they were creating so much value. Berkshire Hathaway from the early 2000s to now to the future it is not likely going to be smashing the performance of the S&P 500 such that, you know, if there's a headwind of three or four percentage points a year on valuation that you're still going to beat the market. Um, so I think, you know, I think if you look at that and that's what you should judge him on, well, listen, you know, he created 10 or 11% of value a year for 15 years with effectively no risk. Uh, you know, he, he was matched on his, the one place he had some liabilities and in insurance. He pretty much just matched him to T-bills, uh, used no debt and, you know, the intrinsic value of the company went up more than that at the stock market. I, I think that's a pretty good achievement. I think if you look at the assets he owns, I, I think we have to be a little careful because there could be a world in which case the assets that he owns might do quite well in comparison to the assets that have done well over the last five or 10 years. So, um, you know, if real interest rates were much higher and nominal rates as well, you know, some of the, some of the growth names could have some problems uh, and something like an insurance company where you have, you know, $150 billion of short-term 
uh, fixed in some income securities are going to be making a lot more money than they are. And some bank holdings are going to be doing well. Um, so, you know, the time horizon's long. Uh, were there things that he could have gotten that probably would have made sense? Yeah. But I think that's true for everyone. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I think uh, he's uh, done. I think he's done. And you know, some people have an argument against this, but I would say from 2005 to 2020, he did pretty damn good. Uh, so, you know, all right. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what does the future look like uh, for Berkshire after Buffett? Um, you know, like last year, I think it was last year, uh, they made some headlines because they made some unusual investments, uh, like, you know, minuscule on the scale of the entire, you know, entire Berkshire, but like still large in dollar amounts. They, you know, they made a, an investment in Stone Co., an investment in Snowflake. Uh, like, what does the future look like uh, for Berkshire after Buffett's gone? It's a good question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, I, yeah, they've, the um, Todd Weschler and Todd Combs have definitely made some investments that uh, Buffett and Munger would not make. So, you know, to our point, maybe, maybe they will, um, maybe they'll get some things that Buffett and Munger would have missed. And so that could be a positive, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I don't know much about many SAS names. Sure. Um, I'm not an expert there. I've seen a couple investments. Maybe those will turn out great. Maybe they won't. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to say. I think the only thing you can say is things will be a little different. I hope that, you know, I hope if the stock continue, continues to trade a discount that the new managers will be aggressive at buying it in. That's that's my one big hope. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that Buffett doing that this year, they bought back a good amount of stock, sort of gives new management license to, to do that, if that makes sense. Um, but besides that, yeah, I mean, you know, listen, they owned uh, two stocks. I own... Um, I, I don't exactly always know who, uh, which one of the Todd's Westland Combs did what, but, you know, I know I was just talking to a friend and he mentioned, uh, one of them, his own, had owned Visa for a while. And, um, I think Visa is one that Berkshire could have probably made a lot of money on. Um, it's been cheap enough from time to time. You know, he owns a lot of Amex. He, he knows the space, of course. Um, yeah, I know, actually, like, I think I've said this on Twitter before. I think missing on MasterCard and Visa. I mean, I know I think he had small stakes in them, but I I almost think that's the like he that we, we can talk about how he missed the tech companies and everything like that. But I think missing on MasterCard and Visa because they were in the space like he was familiar with might be like his biggest mistake. And again, like I, I feel like too much of the show we're we're throwing shade at or I'm throwing shade at Buffett. So I'm not I'm not trying to. I, I do think he's an amazing investor, but I think like, uh, you know, if you were trying to pick apart his career, like missing on MasterCard and Visa uh, 10 years ago when they first went public uh, or almost any time since really uh, like because they're in that space that he's familiar with, like might've been like maybe like a worse crime of omission than, uh, than missing on like the big tech companies. Yeah. I, I 
you know, I, I, it's hard to say. I was actually, man, I was talking to somebody today and he, he was talking about this and I think Munger was worried about, uh, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, some competition and maybe some regulation and, you know, they, they were pretty cheap. I want to say it was in 2011 or 12. I think they traded it a very undemanding price to free cash flow multiple. Um, certainly how things have turned out for them to not have put a lot of money in those. Yeah. They knew the space. Um, things could have been different, uh, but on expected value bet, uh, they were probably quite, quite good ideas. So, so yeah, I mean, I, that could have gone better, but you know what? So those small positions was, it was one of Weschler Combs, you know, who knows if they were in charge of Berkshire 10 years ago, maybe they would have put $20 billion into visa. Uh, you don't really know, uh, you know, like I own charter and I, I really like that business and, and one of the two of them or both owns charter. Um, so, you know, they've also done some weird things like GM, which who knows if that really makes sense. Uh, but point being, the new, the new, the new people that run it, they'll be different. Maybe they'll own a little more SaaS, but you know, maybe they would also put a lot of money in Visa. It's hard to say. So, um, what as a shareholder, what are what will you be looking for? Like as either like a a real positive sign. Well, I mean, you mentioned buybacks, but like, what would you, uh, I guess, like consider a red flag after uh, you know the Todd's, at, you know post Buffett, post Munger, Berkshire, like what, what are red flags you would be uh, looking for from the new management team that you'd be like, maybe make you a little hesitant uh, about continuing owning shares? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what can be really difficult. So, so one, one of the ideas with Berkshire is, is how do you, how do you lose, you know, how, how do you lose in an entity with, again, their liabilities are matched to T-bills. There's pretty much no debt. Uh, they've got this big diverse collection of businesses that are, you know, mostly pretty good. Um, and they trade at a price where if the, all the cash was distributed, you, you probably make 10% returns or more. Uh, you know, given where the market is, that to me looks pretty attractive. Uh the the best way that I can think of that you lose as well, when they're deploying new capital, they, they deploy it at, you know, not so good rates of return. What's interesting is uh, a lot of the businesses that Berkshire owns, like the utility utilities sort of specifically um, and some of their assorted other manufacturing businesses, uh, manufacturing services and retailing. Um, a lot of those in, in businesses invest a lot back into the business. And so you'll see the capital expenditures run above depreciation expense by a good amount uh, most every year. So uh, some of the value in Berkshire is, is just reinvested into the business. And it, there's not as much true free cash flow as you might think uh, because they're investing for growth. So it turns out if you say, well, the businesses would make 10% if, you know, you paid out all the money. Well, you know, what if they start deploying money at eight? Well, if they deploy all their free cash flow at 8% for 10 years, it's like, instead of making 10, you make nine. Uh, so you're only going to start to really get in trouble 
if they start deploying capital at you know zero uh, or two or four, you know, some pretty low rate of return. Sure, sure. And, and I, so I think like, you know, I, I think you give the new people some slack, you know, if they make, if they make an investment, you know, in the first six months that you're like, ah, looks a little iffy. I don't know how I feel about it. I, I don't think I'm selling shares then. If, if over a few years they do a few things that, you know, they don't seem to have the long-term in mind or, you know, they make some just completely obvious blunders and then, then I'm going to be worried. Um, I think the culture of the place is too long-term oriented and too rational to let one or two people that are in charge of say stocks from really running wild with the place. I I think could be wrong, uh, but, but I would, that's hard for me to see. So, but, but that's what I, what I would need to see is, just real obvious misallocation of capital. Or I get, you know, a, a good one could be, you know, let's say instead of Berkshire trading at 80 or 90% of what it's worth, let's let's say for some reason it trades at 60. Uh, you know, in that case, you should be spending every dollar you have on buying back stock. And let's say they just go out and buy, uh, you know, some sort of expensive company that could be okay, but like, you know, your 10 or 20 year rate of return probably isn't going to be that attractive. Then, then I'm, I could have a problem with that. Uh, that one can be a little more concrete. Sure. If the stock was trading at 110 or 120% of fair value. Uh, and so buying back stocks was not attractive. What, what would you want to see? Would you want to see a dividend? Uh, would you want to see like, how, how would you want capital to be deployed in a scenario like that? Yes, uh, that <laughs> this is okay. Another disclaimer: this is another place where I feel a little bit differently than most investors. All right. Um, so, Travelers is a really interesting company. Um, they operate the insurance company. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, they're they're big. Yep. No, uh, great insurance company. Yep. Yeah. So, so they've operated almost financially, almost the opposite of Berkshire Hathaway. So when I was talking about an insurance company with $3 of assets and say 20 cents of, uh, of the three in investments being in productive assets and the rest bonds, that pretty much describes travelers. Um, they have just a, a big portfolio of high quality bonds. They've got a good insurance under operation, uh, sorry, a good insurance operation that underwrites profitably, uh, you know, most every year, it grows a little bit, nothing crazy. Um, but financially, they take any excess capital they have and they buy back stock and they don't really worry about what the price is. And it, it hasn't often been at a price that's silly high, but you know, sometimes it seems a little expensive. But the idea is, okay, listen, you know, one, we, we don't exactly know when our stock's a little expensive or a little cheap. Um, But if we buy back our stock that's 10% too expensive, that might be better than keeping the money, you know, in short-term bonds to earn 1% and to try to wait four years until our stock gets a little bit cheap. You know, it's like if the IRR on our buyback is seven or eight instead of 10 or 11, 
that's going to be better than holding cash and trying to deploy it later, perhaps. So they've just said, hey, we're going to get rid of our excess capital. Turns out, uh, if you look at the intrinsic value of that, and I, I haven't checked on this in the last maybe six or eight months, but I believe the stock price is well, you can make an argument um, the intrinsic value has grown faster than at Berkshire, and I believe their stocks outperformed. So right. it's an interesting financial philosophy, which is just make sure your capital structures, uh, I don't always like to use this word, but efficient. Um, right. And they, they've done pretty well for themselves. So, you know, let's say Berkshire is at 110% of their intrinsic value. Um, let's say I'm not going to sell it for some reason the whole position, maybe it's taxes. Uh, let's say their choices are keep capital on the balance sheet, pay a dividend, buy back stock. You know, with Berkshire, I don't mind so much, especially compared to other companies, if they keep a little excess capital from time to time. Uh, you know, I, I think it's good. I, I think it makes the company safe. It obviously gives them great opportunities if the markets melt down. So, I'm relatively more okay than other places with them keeping a little bit of extra cash around. I think that's generally good. Um, if they get way too much cash, you know, if they pay me a dividend, I, I mostly run uh, money for people that live in California and pay taxes. So, uh, you know, even the taxes on dividends can get kind of high. Um, even again, so this is, this is where I'm going to say something that people won't all agree with. Even if the stock's a little expensive, I would prefer a buyback. And if it's expensive to me, then I can sell proportionate into the buyback and I'll pay less tax than I paid on a dividend. If I think it's at fair value, maybe I won't sell into the buyback, but it, you know, it just gives me the, op- the option to do whatever I want with it. Um, sure, sure. So, so, you know whatever. That's, that's not finance 101. People tell you, well, if your stock is expensive, don't buy it back. And I'll say, you know what? I'm a shareholder. I I can make that choice myself. Uh, So I actually agree with that. Like, uh, like, so like uh, if, if I had to pick one investor, you know, uh, who I've learned or who I, I try to like model myself after in in some ways it's Pat Dorsey, right? It's not Warren Buffett. And he's very big on though, like on, making buybacks when it's like undervalued and like deploying that capital wisely. But I've always felt like you can make a, a case for, for any company. Like you, we tell investors, like you can dollar cost average into stocks. Like, uh, you know, when you're unsure about the valuation, but you think it's a great company, uh, you know, I, I think you can make the same case for companies to buy back their stocks. Just like, um, you know, you, you take any company uh, that, that regularly buys back stocks. And I, you know, I think you can, uh, I think you can make a good case. Like, well, just, you know, if you regularly buy back stocks, like, yes, sometimes you might be buying it back when it's a little overvalued or a little undervalued, but like, uh, like I still think that's a, can be a a wise decision to allocate capital. Yeah. And I I mean, I I really think that uh, that travelers example, I think that's an example that all investors should study deeply uh, in contrast to Berkshire Hathaway. Um, you know, you can, you can come to your own conclusions. You can say that, well, the risk profile is different, uh, under some circumstances, things would be different, but, but it is interesting to me that a company that allocated its capital very differently than Berkshire did a little better in a similar industry. And it's not like insurance shot the lights out over the last 15 years either. Uh, 
So I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, I owned um, for a long time, uh, I owned AutoZone and AutoZone. Uh, bought back a lot of shares. Yeah, they buy back a lot of shares. And in the last five years, if you that's a that's actually one of the more interesting business cases I'm aware of is, I don't know if this is still true, but as of a few years ago, um, since the late 90s, I believe the amount of transactions done in an AutoZone store had been kind of flattish uh, over those 17 years. And the stock is up. I don't know if it was 50 X or hundred X, but some huge amount. And what's interesting, the reason is because um, the price of the parts went up a little bit, their margins went up a little bit. Um, You know, they bought back stock. They built a lot of new shares and took market share. Uh, they use a little bit of leverage. It's like every other piece worked in the same direction and and you made a tremendous amount of money. Um, but in the past few years, that that business, the margin expansion has slowed or stopped. They're going to run out of new stores at some point. Um, you could have paid a high multiple 20 years ago. That's not been the case recently. And so, you know, I don't own it anymore, but um, there were a few times when, you know, AutoZone traded what I thought were a little too high you know, they bought back some stock and I sold proportionately into the buyback and that was fine. You know, I, I paid less tax than I would have if it was a dividend. So um, just as long as I think a company has a consistent financial policy, like like you don't want a company that runs at zero net leverage to say, hey, we're going to lever up 4X to buy back a huge portion of our stock when it's overvalued. If they're doing it in, in a sort of normal way with normal leverage targets, then you know what, buy back the stock. I'll sell it if it's cheap. That's what I prefer. Sure, sure. Uh, Last question. Is there a next Berkshire on the horizon? Like, so sometimes people talk about Markel or uh, Boston Omaha. I almost think you can make a case for like a Constellation Software or Roper uh, where they like roll up companies like in uh, kind of similar businesses and try to realize synergies. Is there a company out there that you think could be like the next, uh, like a, is, is today like a quote unquote mini Berkshire that could grow into become the next Berkshire? There are some acquisitive uh, industrial well, business to business companies that have quite good track records. You mentioned a couple of them, Constellation Softwares, uh, to my eye, probably the best. And, and I own that as well. Uh I uh, was, again, just talking to somebody about this. And I think Constellation Software's odds to match Berkshire's intrinsic value growth over, you know, 30 or 40, 50 years are maybe better than anybody else's. Uh, So, yeah, there's some companies that have that acquisitive gene and are very good at it and have some big advantages. I think the sort of Berka likes the mini Berkshires in insurance have generally been a disappointment. Um, you mentioned Markel. That's, I think that's been the best managed uh, company in that space. Sure. You have a few others that the pitch was, well, this is mini Berkshire Hathaway. They didn't work out well at all. in in some cases uh, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's really hard. Uh, I think Buffett doesn't get enough credit 
for how good of an insurance executive he is. Um, if you look at how, you know, before Berkshire became as big as it is now with all these non-insurance businesses and all this extra capital, if you look at a normal insurance business that's well run, um, you can compound the intrinsic value much faster than the return on your equity portfolio. And the way you do it is, um, let's go back to that example. You have $3 in assets, uh, $2 in float, $1 in shareholders equity. So just say, you know, you invest the $1 in shareholders equity in stocks and you earn 12% a year. You're a really good stock picker. And so, um, you know, if nothing else happens, your book value goes up 12% a year. Well, the second piece is you have $2 of bonds and they're going to earn some interest. Uh, and so let's say, um, you know, that could add, depending on where interest rates are, that's going to add some income. And so the first year, you know, your book value is not going to go up 12% a year. It's going to go up a little more than that. Um, and then lastly, if you underwrite it a profit, uh, that's going to increase your earnings and, and your gain in book value as well. What happens is, let's take that insurance company, you know, the first year, if your stocks make 12, um, your intrinsic value and your book value might go up 17% when you add in the income from the bonds and the underwriting. If you're un if you underwrite a hundred dollars of, sorry, a dollar of insurance business. And the next year you still underwrite a dollar of, of insurance business. Um, you know, the income from the bonds is going to be pretty much the same say the income from the underwriting is going to be pretty much the same, but you're going to have a bigger base of shareholders equity. So those two little boosts to your growth are going to matter less. Uh, so as the insurance business gets bigger, um, if it's just now more of your returns can come from stocks and your gain in intrinsic value is going to be closer to 12 than your hypothetical 17. So what you really need to turbocharge growth and compounding is you need the underwriting to grow sort of along with your book value because that keeps your leverage um, of the bond income and the underwriting income high and can boost your, your returns. And so if you look back at Berkshire, what he did incredibly well was grow and grow and grow that insurance business so that he didn't just end up with all this extra capital. Uh, you know, he kept increasing the amount of the float, which, you know, he could invest and, and earn an income on and his underwriting income so that it was like, you know, if he maybe earned 13% on his stocks, but he got another large boost uh, to his return on equity because the, the insurance business grew along with it. And, and that is something that few insurance companies have been able to do. And the ones that have been able to do it um, haven't pursued a Berkshire model. They're sort of more of a payout model. So um, you need both of those things. You need really good investing and you need that sort of incredible performance from your insurance business. And I, I haven't seen those two things married since Berkshire. Um, many people have tried, but it's difficult. So sure. No, absolutely. It, it's a, it's a pretty impressive track record that has not been matched yeah. uh, too often, if ever. Yeah. Uh, Kyler, where can people find you if they're interested in uh, following you? Yes. Best places on Twitter at Kyler Hassan, uh, Tyler with a K uh, last name's H A S S O N. I'm 
on it a lot, maybe a little too much. Uh, I, I, can I, res- <laughs> I, I respond to direct <laughs> messages there. Uh, I'm on uh, the company I work for is Delta Investment Management. You can find us online there if you'd prefer and reach out. Uh, those would be the two best places. All right, great. Uh, Kyler, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran. We're Seven Investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.